Well, I hope I don't throw you off too much here this evening. I um, told the brothers, the elders, when I got here, I sent them the wrong scripture text. Um, so I'm going to have, we're going to read from Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. But before that, I'd like to read from Isaiah chapter 55. For that, let's ask for our God's blessing on the word. Let's pray. Our Father, we know that you have promised that as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, that in the same way your word will go forth from your mouth and it will not return empty and void but it shall accomplish all that you have set out for it to do and succeed in the things for which you have sent it. And so we ask this evening, Lord, as your word is read, as it is proclaimed, uh, that what you have promised would be true in our own hearts, that you would cause the Holy Spirit that you have sent forth from the east and, or to the east and the west and the north and south, indeed to the four corners of the earth, that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts, drawing us closer unto yourself by what you have spent, by what you have promised in your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so we ask in these ways that you would work in us even now. And we pray it in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. The word of the Lord from Isaiah 55. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast love, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you did not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel for he has glorified you. And then turning over to Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, 
and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Please be seated. With the um, change of the sermon text, the title, if you were writing it down or care, is called The Deficiency of Self-Sufficiency. And I think that'll make a little bit more sense to you here as we get going. Uh, But as we come to this particular uh, portion of the book of Revelation, we're coming, and I do realize I'm dropping in out of nowhere Uh, leaving you without a lot of the context here, but uh, we're coming to the final letter to the seven churches. Uh, In Revelation, uh, Christ speaks to the seven churches, which was a representation of all the church of Jesus Christ throughout all the world, Uh, and each of the churches have uh, particular aspects that he is addressing. And now, though we are uh, nowhere near the end of the book, you, you do, when you come to the end of chapter 3, you're coming to an end of a section where Christ has been speaking directly to his church in letters where these promises and threatenings of Christ uh, have been strongly uh, uh, emphasized to the church, and yet uh, he is doing so without the uh, uh, strong veils of imagery that the rest of the book of Revelation seems to carry with it. Uh, If you spend a a few moments just perusing the book of Revelation, you'll get an idea of what I'm I'm talking about. Uh, Revelation is filled with imagery, uh, but the letters to the churches seem to have less so. Uh, And so there's a point that as you come to the end of this chapter, you realize there is a shift in the book that is happening or going to happen. It is no longer going to be about the letters to the churches, but it will be Uh, images and visions that God will speak to his church through for the remainder of the book. And so I I bring this up because in one sense, when you come to an end of a section, even though this is just a section, uh, we hope that we're going to be left with a sense of hope uh, and something to look forward to, some good news, if you will, or some kind of kindness, uh, something lovely to rest upon. Uh, so, for example, I think uh, when we say goodbye to loved ones who we've been with for a little time, uh, when you end your time together, like around the holidays, uh, you try to end it on a good note, if possible. Maybe things got a little tense around the dinner table when politics were brought up, uh, saying, you know, but at the end of the day, uh, you, you will end up saying things like, it was good to see you, or I can't wait to see you again next year, uh, or, or even just a simple, I love you. That's how we like to end interactions with loved one, and in part is because we want things to end well. 
But that is not the case here. I'm sorry. That is not the end of, or the case here in the way the letter ends. Uh, because the letter to the church of Laodicea, in fact, is the harshest of all the letters to the churches. Uh, five of the churches have been rebuked by Christ Jesus, calling for repentance with some sort of inkling within the text that there is uh, uh, um, still some who are within the gates of each of the particular types of churches who remain faithful, that there is still some hope for them, uh, and call to repentance and some sort of, along these lines, there's commendations for what she is doing well. But again, that is not the case here. Uh, there are no real niceties given in this particular text. And while the chance for repentance is still held out in this text for this church, she is reproached above all the rest as a self-sufficient church. A self-sufficient church. Her text opens up and it begins with the titles of Christ, just as every other letter has done so. Uh, and each of the letters follows this basic pattern and structure. But uh, these particular titles of Christ, where it speaks of who he is, that he is the one, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. These are the uh, most controversial titles of Christ in the book uh, or in the letters to the churches. And what I mean by that it really is that uh, there's not a lot of consensus on exactly what Christ means in it. Uh, each of the other letters, if you read them, they begin with words uh, or part of the title of Christ that refers back to the vision of Christ in chapter 1. Uh, so if you were to go back to chapter 1, verses 9 through 18, uh, you will find phrases at the beginning of each letter that reference those titles of Christ as he is revealing himself to the church. But he's not, that is not the case here. Uh, and so there's been questions about why these titles are different, what it is that is going on, uh, whether these titles are really trying to get us to move forward in the book and look forward, uh, or, or what else could be possibly going on. And there are really two main interpretations that I think are helpful for us uh, in trying to understand the frame of this letter. Because each title, Christ is introducing something that the church needs to hear. And then he will address the church in that way, and he will give them the solution to that particular problem that is raised in the text. So there are two ways I think that this title could be understood. One, as you'll notice, it tells us that this Jesus is both the Amen and the beginning of God's creation. Now, in Revelation chapter 22, we hear God say, I am the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And we hear that same sort of language, actually, in Revelation chapter 1. Similar, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was and who is to come. And what you have here, it could be a reference to those two scenes. 
Or it may not refer to those two particular scenes because here the order is a little bit different and intentionally so, I think. think. It is backwards. It doesn't start with the beginning and move to the end, but it begins with the end and moves to the beginning. We hear the Jesus is the Amen first, and then we hear that he is the beginning of creation, which could, in fact, be pointing to the new creation. Meaning, and I'll try to explain this, it's really hard just dropping in out of nowhere. You know, uh, but Jesus is putting before this church that he is most concerned about the reminder that he promises the end of everything will come in him, which is a word that this particular church needs to hear. The reminder that there will be an end and that a new creation will begin in him as well, that everything is upheld in him and by him. Uh, Either way you take these titles, I, I think the bottom line is that it is through Christ that we are to understand that life is being given, whether you think this is referring to when it says that he is the beginning of God's creation, whether this is referring to the original creation, something that Colossians 1 attests to, especially when it tells us that he is before all things, and that all things are held together in him, meaning that the very fabric of the creation reality is held together by Christ even now, or whether you think that it is speaking to the new creation. For in 2 Corinthians, you also hear this word of Christ that we are new creations in Christ because he is bringing about a new Work a new life, a new creation through his death and resurrection. He brings new life out of the dead. And I think you can take these titles, either way you interpret this text, to mean that because, or, or, or to mean that the overall point of the text really is to remind the church how entirely dependent they are on Christ for all things. In every way, we depend on Christ. If he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and end, we depend on him for all things. We depend on him for life. We depend on him for our very existence. If you understand that it is speaking to Christ as the author of creation and the author of new creation, you still come to the same conclusion that we are dependent upon Christ for all things. We need him for life and for new life for creation, and for redemption. And this church of Jesus Christ here in this text especially needs to hear this because she has deceived herself into believing that she does not need him who is the author of creation and new creation. And we'll come back to this as I think this is the key to understanding the whole of the letter here. But notice... Very quickly, Jesus begins to consider the works of the church of Laodicea, and he is not pleased. Verse 15, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. But you are lukewarm, and because you are neither hot nor cold, I will spit you from my mouth. Now, traditionally, this particular 
phrase, this verse, it has been understood that we are to be seek to be hot uh, for Jesus or zealous for Jesus. Uh, if you are cold and reject Jesus outright, that would be at least better than being lukewarm and tepid, tepid in the love for Jesus. But one of the things to keep in mind as you read these letters uh, is that it is written to an actual physical church in the city of Laodicea, which I think helps our interpretation of this text here. Now, Laodicea is one of three prominent cities in the Lycus Valley, which is in modern-day Turkey. And the two other uh, were called Colossae, who is the letter to the letter to the Colossians is written to, and Hierapolis. Now, in AD 60, there is a great earthquake in the land. And when, uh, if you go back to the letter of Philadelphia, Philadelphia also experienced this earthquake. And they asked for aid from the Roman emperor at the time, who relieved them by not, not taxing them for the year. And they were granted financial relief. But Laodicea never asked for help. But it is a city that picks itself up by its own bootstraps, if you will, uh, and finances the reconstruction of its own city. Uh, the equivalent you could think about, it would be like, uh, you know, many years ago when uh, New Orleans was hit by Hurricane Katrina and the travesty that went on there. Uh, it would be the equivalent if the government had never stepped in, but indeed that the city had rebuilt itself entirely. Uh, this is no small task that we are talking about for this city, and it is a really big deal for Laodicea. And you can imagine how this becomes part of their identity as a city, that they are self-sufficient, that they do not need much help from the outside. But one of the problems that they had that differed from both of the other two cities in the valley, both Colossae and Hierapolis, is that they had a very poor water source. In Hierapolis, which is six miles to the north, the city got water from hot springs. And those hot springs were used for medicinal purposes and to bring healing, a theme that is going to be touched on a little bit later with the eye salve that I'll come back to. And then 10 miles to the east was the city of Colossae, which had a cool mountain stream running down as its source of water. And if you've ever had the pleasure of drinking from an ice-cold mountain stream, you know how refreshing it is. But Laodicea did not have either of these two water sources. In fact, their water was considered turbid, this is a quote, turbid with white mud. It was nauseous and undrinkable. They built an aqueduct to bring water in from five miles away. But the issue is, and what's interesting about it, is that for a city that is so self-sufficient, that is self-sustaining, it lacks one of the most basic resources of life to flourish, a good source of water. And Jesus says to the church of Laodicea, you are like that water source in your own town. You disgust me and you make me sick. And I will spit you from my mouth just as you spit out your undrinkable water. I lament you just like you lament your drink from your local water source. And this is really incredibly harsh language. 
This is Christ rebuking his church, and it's not something to pass over lightly. But the question is, why is Jesus being so harsh to his church? Why does Jesus say these things in rebuke to his people, to us? Verse 17, because you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I have need of nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It does not paint a very lovely picture of what the church actually is. You see, what is happening here is that the self-sufficiency of the city is mirrored in the church. Which, by the way, this is common. Uh, The sins of the society we live in are almost always the sins of the church as well. Uh, Just to give you one statistic I'm aware of, uh, uh, the, the divorce rate in America is close to 50%. And the divorce rate in the church is like 49%, if not the same The sins of the society we live in are almost always the sins of the church as well because we're easily influenced by the culture we live in. Uh, Often we pick up the worst parts of that society as well. Uh, It certainly happens to us here in America. We are an affluent nation, and the church generally is affluent as well. And when we have money and other resources, it makes us more self-sufficient, the very sin that is going on here. The church of Laodicea has come to the point where they believe that they are self-sufficient, that they have, notice that language, they have need of nothing, which is a very, very dangerous place for any within the church to be in. To say, I am fine, I need no help. I need nothing. Why is that a bad place to be? Because we are entirely dependent on God for everything. The whole of our creed and confession is about this. It is from him that we move and have our being. Whether it is speaking to us as creatures created in the image of God, who are uh, 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 on this created earth that came into existence out of nothing but the goodwill of our Father and His spoken word, or whether we are speaking about those who have been bought with a price and now belong to Him as children, as those who have been given new life, new life breathed into us by the Holy Spirit. Either way, we are completely and entirely dependent on God, both for life and new life. Every part of our lives, whether we are talking about being creatures or God's redeemed ones, is dependent on him. It is entirely reliant upon the God who made us and bought us for a price. But this church is forgetting their dependence on him. And you can see why. Because our own context leads to the same troubles. Again, notice what it says. They think, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Our struggle today as a church in this country is parallel, if it is not the exact same. Because of our wealth, we often see ourselves as self-sufficient. 
I don't need anything, including help from others. I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. And we love these kinds of stories. We revel in them. We love rags-to-riches stories. When someone is in great need, and then through their own work, through their own uh, you know, hard labors, they come out of it. They no longer need help. We pride ourselves in being able to do things on our own. Even our little children do this. Uh, you know, they'll say to you, I can do it myself. <laughs> and you know, it's the same attitude we have as adults too. We just say it a little bit more maturely and a little bit more politely. One of the hardest things for any of us to do is to ask for help. I find this to be true, whether in the city or the country. I find it is a a more difficult thing for country folk to receive help because they are so used to being dependent upon themselves. And what it turns into, the cycle it turns into, is that we are happy to give help and yet extremely reluctant to receive it. And it is for this reason that Jesus says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Because the heart that typically goes with someone who has resources is, I need nothing. I am self-sufficient God says here, and it may be that the most godly thing you can do is admit that you are insufficient. It may be the very, the most godly thing you can do to say that I am insufficient, that I fall short of the glory of God that I am a sinner, that I am finite and pressed against my own limitations as a finite creature. And why would I say that? Why would I say this is godly to admit that we need help, that we are not sufficient of ourselves? Because it takes humility to say, I am weak, I am not strong. To say these words, I need help, takes a great deal of humility. And God promises To give grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. The reason it is godly to admit our own insufficiency, our own failings, is because the whole of our Christian faith is built on the principle that we are weak, that we are not strong, and that we need help because we cannot save ourselves. We are broken. We are sinners. We need an all-sufficient Savior. And that is exactly who Christ is. He is an all-sufficient Savior. As you read this text, as we've read this text together, I can't help but hear the echoes back to that text of Isaiah 55 that we read this evening. Because in that text, ask the question, who is the one who is welcome to come to Christ and enter into everlasting covenant with him and with the steadfast love of David to receive the steadfast love of the Lord through the Messiah, the son of David? It is he who has no money. 
Come, buy and eat without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor on that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food, the rich food that I myself provide to you, milk and wine and I who am the bread of life, giving you abundantly more than you could ask or think. I will bless you. And I will give you more than you can imagine. Come to me as your source of life, and I will give your soul rest. And leave your money at the door. Leave anything of value that you may bring to the table that would make you say, I'm more acceptable because of this one thing that I bring before the Father. Jesus says, leave that all behind. Because when you come through the door, through me, who is the door, who is the way into the presence of the Father, I will give you the gold refined by fire that you need. I will clothe you in white garments so that your shame and your nakedness will not be seen. I will heal you of all your iniquities. I will heal your blindness with salve for your eyes, which is something that the medicinal school of Laodicea was known for producing. This healing agent for the eyes. Before this church gets too discouraged, because this language has been so harsh with them, as though Jesus is going to cast them away, he says, To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Which is why Christ is speaking this way to the church. It is not done out of anger, but it is done out of love because he loves her and is correcting her. And so be zealous and repent. Turn from your self-sufficiency to a Savior who is infinite, who neither slumbers nor sleeps, who has no need of either, who meets all of your needs, whether you realize it or not who holds your life in the very palm of his hand and has promised to never leave you nor forsake you, to care for you all the days of your life, that we would dwell in the house of our Lord forever. These are the promises of your God to you, O church. And so he calls us to turn to him and rest in him, repenting of our self-sufficiency, crying out to Abba, Father, we need your help. Every hour. What is that hymn we sang? I need thee every hour. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me, speaking forward and looking forward to the marriage banquet of the Lamb. I can't walk away without touching this particular verse, though. You need to understand this verse. It is not Jesus standing at the door waiting to be invited into your house as a guest. He is not anxiously waiting to see if you will open the door of your heart uh, uh, to hear his call. And distinctly remember seeing this picture of Jesus doing just that in the very first church I grew up in. As though if you just open your heart to him and let him in, all will be well. Rather, this image of Jesus standing at the door and knocking is reminiscent of Luke chapter 12. I'd encourage you, if you have a chance, to look over that particular text. 
but it is the picture of the master returning home from the wedding feast. And he is calling in that scene his servants to put the house in order so that they are prepared for his arrival, for he will come. Indeed, the whole of the letter of Revelation anticipates Christ's return at any moment. For Jesus says, if he comes in the second or the third watch and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. When I find them awake, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I have conquered and sat down on my father's throne. But beware, woe to the one who is asleep at my return. You see, it is a call to the church to wake up to their need of Jesus. We need Jesus. It's as simple as that. We need Jesus. And Jesus, we need his righteousness. We need him to live for us. We need him to give himself for us, even to the point of death. And the death on the cross, we must turn to him, recognizing that we have nothing that we bring to this. But our filthy rags, our nakedness, our shame, our blindness, our pitiableness. We have nothing apart from him. But Christ sets his love upon his church anyway. And he calls us to come to the waters with nothing in our hands to bring. But simply to his cross we cling. And in so doing, Jesus will cause you to delight in him in ways you never thought possible. I was just having a conversation today of a young woman who was in a car accident very much like Joni Erickson taught us, she lost use of her limbs below the waist, and her lung capacity was at 20%. Her husband left her. And yet, the report of this woman was, I never knew someone who was so happy. Because she knew her Savior loved her. You see, when you're put in that kind of position, it is much easier to see that you have nothing to make you acceptable before the Father. Only Christ can make you acceptable before the Father. And that is what we are called to here. Come. Come to the waters. Come with nothing in your hands. Come and rest afresh and anew upon your Lord and Savior this day. Not as though you have never believed, but believing upon him again And again, as we look for and long for the day where we will sit down and sup with him at the marriage banquet of the Lamb of God. Amen.